0: Esther chapter nine. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vyazatha, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also, to do according to this day's edict. Let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now And the rest of the the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan which he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, The Jews firmly bound themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep to these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse amongst the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease amongst their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther bound them, and as they had bound themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of of the high honour of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people."
1: Lord God, our Father, we do thank you for this wonderful book, for the wonderful story that we've heard and seen as we've looked at it together. And we do thank you too, as we come to the end of this story, uh, for the salvation that we see and the salvation that it points to. Lord God, we begin by praising you for the salvation you give to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that our view of that salvation will increase, that we'll be more thankful uh, by the end of this time together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the tide was finally turning. June 6th, 1944, Allied invasion of Normandy began in Operation Overlord during World War II, otherwise known, of course, as D-Day. On that day, when that victory was gained, there was a new hope emerging that the war could actually be won. At that point, things began to change. Now, there'd still be almost a year until the E-Day victory in Europe, but the tide was turning from that point on, and a new hope was born. As we come to Esther chapter 8, we find ourselves in a similar position. Though we're not on the beaches of Normandy, we're in the citadel of Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, in around 473 BC. Let me remind you of the situation. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, is king, and he rules over pretty much the whole known world. We keep getting repeated throughout the story, 127 provinces, including, of course, therefore, Israel and the scattered Jewish people throughout his lands. We've seen that he has a new queen. He has a a young Jewish woman called Esther has become his queen. That was way back in chapter 2. But since then, the things have pretty seriously gone wrong. In chapter 3, we met this guy, Haman, who's the prime minister of the empire. And he's a descendant of Agag. He's an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of the Jewish people. And this guy, he concocts a plot in which he seeks to get rid of all the Jews throughout the empire, in all the provinces, the whole kingdom, To do that, he writes an edict, an empire-wide edict, in which he sets a date about a year's time from when it was written, where anyone who wanted to could take up arms and, to quote the edict, destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, and plunder all their goods at the same time. It's a really terrible decree, it's a genocide, And God's people at this moment are too weak to do anything about it. But as the story has unfolded, we have seen that God is not too weak and he has not abandoned his people. Last week in chapter 7, we saw the leader of the party that hated the Jews hoisted on his own petard. Haman, the great enemy of the Jews, is hanged on his own gallows. Moreover, the irony is that the the man that Haman intended to hang on those gallows is the Jew named Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin. And so as Haman is hanged and dead, Mordecai is elevated and raised into Haman's place. He becomes the king's right-hand man, the prime minister, So we've seen that God's been working behind the scene and the tide is turning in favour of the Jews. By the end of chapter 7, Haman is dead and Mordecai and Esther are elevated to positions of authority and Esther chapter 7 then is D-Day, if you like. It's that first great victory, the first crushing victory over the enemy which gives hope that they may be saved in the end. But it's not VP Day yet, victory in Persia. The terrible edict is still out there. It still threatens every every Jew throughout the lands. And the date of destruction is set in law for nine months' time as we enter chapter 8. And it's been set in law by the king, sealed with the king's signet ring. So it's still a really precarious situation, despite the victory that's just come. It's very dangerous. The enemies are still out there, and there are many of them, not least Haman's remaining family and those sons whose names were so long and difficult to read. The tension's still high. The knives are being sharpened. But we're not without hope. There's this renewed hope that God's chosen people may yet be saved from the sentence of death. And the hope comes at the beginning of chapter 8 particularly in verse 2, because there in verse 2 we read that the signet ring of the king is no longer on Haman's finger, for which he used to seal the previous edict. No, it's now on the finger of Mordecai. Perhaps now he has the authority to change things. So chapter 8, verse 3 to 17 is the first section, and it opens with a question. How do you change... What can't be changed? The first eight verses of chapter 8 reveal that as the problem because as Esther pleads with the king for mercy, she falls at his feet, she pleads that he might revoke the edict, it's revealed that the law can't be changed. That's how Persian law worked. Once a decree is made and sealed with the king's ring, that's it, it's irrevocable. See, political leaders can't be wrong, of course. And so the solution, it needs some creativity. What they need, therefore, is a counter edict. And that's what happens from verse 9. Let me read uh, for us. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city. To gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. It's very detailed, isn't it, as to what happens? But do you see, it's exactly the same language... As Haman's decree back in chapter 3. So here's the plan. The Jews are permitted on the day of the attack, the day that the first edict said would be the attack, they're permitted to defend themselves with equal force. I appreciate this is all a little bit bloody for our modern Western ears, especially the bit about women and children. But notice that this is a defensive action. It's not a, a free hand to sort of take out anyone that you don't like. It's only those who take up arms against them who they can attack, including any women and children who might attack them. So it's permission for self-defense. And of course, it has to be phrased in uh, just as strongly as the first edict was, so there's no confusion. These are the same words: to kill, to destroy, to annihilate. Now don't miss this fact too, that there's no month's warning about this. So everyone hears, and and it's really clear that everyone hears, isn't it? It's disseminated in all the various languages of the peoples. It's, It's written as well as spoken. It's put up on notices in public squares so that people can see it and read it. It means that after all this has gone out, anyone who still chooses to attack the Jews will know what they're up against. They've got plenty of time to back out if they choose. Now something else to notice in this chapter, just the end of the chapter, end of chapter 8, verse 15 to 17, Mordecai goes out in his sort of prime minister's um, get-up into the city and look at how the people of Susa respond. See, when the initial edict went out in chapter 3, There was dismay in the city. There was confusion. People were upset by it. But here we get joy. And many people even declaring themselves to be Jews out of fear. I guess that they think they might well get caught up on the wrong side if they don't. And when you take all that in, chapter 8 teaches us that the tide is turning. God's raised up Mordecai into a position of leadership. He's given this decree of that at least gives his people a chance of salvation and at the same time it gives his enemies a warning that judgment's coming if they continue to oppose them. Salvation's decreed. that's what chapter 8's about, but it's not yet secured, not yet. That tension's in place as the day of reckoning dawns as we enter chapter 9. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edicts were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, moment of truth, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout the All the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai Mordecai grew more and more powerful The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In the end, it's an easy victory. And look, the counter-edict, it had clearly had had an effect on people. The fear of them had fallen on all peoples. The fear of Mordecai had fallen on the leaders. See, the people and the leaders have come to learn what Mordecai's... As what Haman's wife said last week was true, that God is on the side of his people and you can't fight God and win. But there are still some who are not so quick to learn, including her sons. The warning does not put them off, such is the hatred that they have for God's people. And these 10 sons, they seem to kind of head up a major offensive in the capital. I guess they're probably trying to target Mordecai and Esther, trying to get rid of them. And they seem to gather a a small army, but their attack fails utterly, verse 9, verse 10. 500 men are killed in the capital. And further, we read that this line of Haman with his Amalekite blood is extinguished. His 10 sons are killed. The body count gets back to the king and he reports it to Esther and she realises wisely that there may be some reprisals on the next day uh, for the events of that day and so she secures the safety of her people by extending the edict one day in Susa she says Look, I just need another day to deal with any further resistance and to put people off she sets up this grisly warning for anyone who want might want to try it on again, the ten dead bodies of Haman's sons are displayed for all to see. Then the second attempt is thwarted, 300 more dead, and in the rest of the empire, well, a, th- a resounding victory, isn't it? 75,000 em- enemies killed in one day, and that's a large number. And we may wonder when we see numbers like that, we may think, well, maybe they sort of got a bit carried away maybe they were overcome by bloodlust and and they just went they went mad and and killed everyone but no that's not the case it's not overdone and the reason we know why is because look at what the author says three times he notes their restraint in not reaping the spoils three times we're told that they don't plunder their enemies they hold back so even though they had the legal right to they choose not to And that helps us to see that what's going on here is not a glorying in the destruction of others. It's the complete rescue of a people from annihilation at the hands of their enemies. It is indeed, as verse 1 put it, a great reversal. All through the book, the sentence of death has hung over God's people like a dark cloud as their enemies gather and, and try to wipe them out and it's only now as we hit chapter 9 that we can rest easy finally and so celebration is the natural response in such circumstances that's what they do. See so the tables are turned the enemy is resoundingly defeated and they're saved and so fasting turns to feasting Despair turns to delight, misery to merriment. It's VP Day at last. They've been saved from the sentence of death. They are safe and secure, and so they rejoice and celebrate. Imagine the relief. They gather spontaneously for feasting and celebration on the following day. it's perhaps here in our story that we can pause for a moment and reflect. As the new covenant people of God, we might find that we can relate to the experience of these Jewish peoples. For have we not too had the experience of the sentence of death over us? And do we not too rejoice in the salvation that we've received Well, I wonder, because sometimes we can be pretty quick to forget, can't we? In fact, sometimes we can be pretty miserable. Now, there are great sadnesses in our lives, certainly. We mustn't underplay them or pretend that they're not real. We should mourn and grieve when these things come our way. But we must also remember that we have it even better than the Jews of this story. Because through Christ we have been saved from the sentence of death once and for all. That black cloud no longer hangs over us. It is often, I think, forgetting how great our salvation is that's the cause for our lack of joy. The Apostle Paul once wrote to the Ephesians, urging them to remember, this is what he said, Remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says, do you remember? Do you remember when you had no hope when you were cut off from God and his people? Do you remember where you were before, when you were dead in your sins, when that that day of judgment hung, hung over you? And now remember this also, that Christ has won life for you through his death and forgiveness of sins through his shed blood that you might be one of his people, that you might be brought near to God. Remember the salvation that we have received, and rejoice. Esther and Mordecai, they seem to know that what has happened must be remembered. In the final part of our story from 9 verse 20 onwards, we're told that Esther and Mordecai create a festival called Purim. They certainly feel that it would be a good idea to to keep what's happened in the consciousness of God's people, that it doesn't get forgotten about. Verse 20 to 32 of chapter 9, they give us these Purim party plans. It's the formal background to the Jewish yearly feast. Now, there's some details that we've got in here, verse 23 to, to 26, about what's going on with this festival. Um, You'll notice that the name Purim comes from the word for lots. Um, It's the plural actually, it's lots. And it's a fitting name. Back in in chapter 3 verse 7, Haman, uh, the enemy, he cast the Pur, he cast lots to determine the date when the Jews would be destroyed. And it was divination, it was occult practice. He thought he was being guided by his gods. So the title poem then is a way of mocking the foolishness of trusting in fate or trusting in other gods. And it emphasises that Haman got what he deserves, it came back on his own head, verse 25. The title then causes remembrance for people, both of the foolishness of opposing God's purposes and of the way in which God creates a rescue, for his people, that God rescued, not by chance. It wasn't just an accident that they were saved. It was a great reversal of fortunes. It came by the hidden hand of God's providence. That's what Esther's story tells us, that God worked behind the scene to bring about salvation for his people. Sometimes it looked really dire. Sometimes things looked really hopeless, but God never left them. And that he has brought things about in his hidden providence for the salvation of his people. And as we remember, that should lead us into joy. I think that's really the first application of this book of Esther. It should lead us to rejoice. Why do I say that? Well, one thing to pay attention to when you read Old Testament stories, Old Testament narrative, is to look for repetition. So words or phrases uh, that keep getting repeated. And there's a lot in this passage, um, but let me point out one of those to you. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, we get this phrase, a day of feasting and gladness. Then look at verse 18, same phrase, a day of feasting and gladness. Then verse 19, a day for gladness and feasting. They'll so just put it all around to check that you're still paying attention and it continues into the next section, verse 22, from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness. So what are they to do to remember? Well, they're to have these feasts. But what emotions should these feasts stir in their souls, in their hearts? Gladness, joy. Mordecai issues another edict in our story, and and he does so to make this spontaneous sort of party into a regular thing. It's to happen on an annual basis. Um, He's got a bit of a complexity about it because the battle happened on one day in the country and a different day or two days in the city. And he comes up with this genius solution of a two-day holiday, which no one says no to a two-day bank holiday, do they? But he's embedding this celebration of joy in their salvation, joy in their salvation, into the regular pattern of life for believers. And we can learn from that. Joy is to mark us out, not joy in earthly things, but joy in the Lord and in the salvation that he has won for us. May we, in the regular pattern of our life, say as Isaiah does, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As this book ends in celebration over salvation, we too should celebrate over the far greater salvation that we've received. But I want us just to notice one more thing. And that is the character of the salvation. And as we do this, I think it will lead us to even greater joy. For the character of the salvation is that it's a salvation undeserved. The book of Esther, as we come to the end of the story, teaches us that salvation comes by grace alone. God loves and saves his people by grace alone, certainly not because they deserve it. Now throughout the book, we've noticed that the characters are actually somewhat ambiguous. They, the whole book begins in exile, and the reason that the Jews were in exile was because of their disobedience to God, because they disobeyed God's word. And these Jews, well, they're still in Persia and they had the opportunity to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to worship in the temple, but they've chosen not to do that. The characters bear their Persian names throughout the book. And Esther is told to hide her Jewish identity initially. She marries someone who's not one of God's covenant people. And so we've got some questions about that, certainly. But at the same time, there are moments when Mordecai and Esther, they do the right thing. And as characters, they do seem to grow as the story goes on, as it goes through the book. They become wiser, make better decisions, and they become more courageous. At the end of chapter 10, we read this account of Mordecai, chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So the story closes with Mordecai now looking out for all the people, leading them, caring for them, looking after them. So it's certainly more positive about him in the end than it was in the beginning. But there are questions about them throughout the book. So what do we do with that? Well, we must keep this in mind. The whole story of their salvation, the story of Esther, it turns on God's intervention, not their faithfulness. We saw that last week, if you were here. Esther failed to ask the king for, her, for salvation, and so God intervened. In the middle of the night, he woke the king up to remind him about Mordecai. It was God who turned the tide, it wasn't Esther or Mordecai. And though the people fast in chapter 3, there are no prayers recorded, no appeals to God for help, there's no reading of God's word, there's no prophets to speak for them throughout the whole book. When they're saved, even in these last few chapters, there's no worship and not one word of thanks to God for their salvation. And that's quite a big contrast to, say, the story of Exodus, the great salvation that they received from Egypt, and the Passover festival that followed, which is where God is rightly praised and, and worshipped. And here's what I think we're to see when we, when we notice that. That the unseen, yet behind-the-scene God is the hero of the story That when God saves his people, he does not do so because they are faithful, but because he is. He is the covenant-keeping God of love. Last week we read these words from Leviticus chapter 26, verse 44. God speaking about his people and their unfaithfulness, he says this, yet for all that all their unfaithfulness, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. And so this then is how this comes home to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus, hear this from the pages of Esther God loves us far more than we realise. He loves us when we've got ourselves into trouble. He loves us even when we think he isn't there. He loves us in those times when we've forgotten about him or when we've shown little interest in him. He loves us even when we fall into sin, though he hates the sin itself and longs that we repent of it. He loves us weak and failing and desperate people because through faith in the broken body and shed blood of his son, he is committed to us as new covenant people and he will never leave us or forsake us. His grace will save us from beginning to end. The unseen God of the book of Esther is the great hero. This is the God we worship, the God in whom we rejoice, the God who saves his people by grace alone and the God who works behind the scenes to love them and keep them even when we don't recognise it. Let's pray and give him glory. Our Father, we... Thank you once more for this book, this story. And we thank you that you are the God who works behind the scene to win salvation for your people, that you never abandon them, that you will never abandon us, that you will bring about our salvation. Father, we're about to sing to you. Salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we do want to as we sing, praise you with our hearts, with all of our souls, for you are worthy of praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.